Hello and thanks for listening to RT Radio 1's The Rolling Wave podcast with me, Aoife Nick In this episode, we're celebrating the iconic album The Liffey Banks from Dublin fiddle player Tommy Potts, which was first released in 1972 by Cladder Records under the stewardship of Gareth de Bruyne and Paddy Maloney. The programme includes contributions from Illan Piper and Tommy Potts' grandnephew Sean Og Potts, from fiddle players Martin Hayes, Aoife Nivrian and James Kelly, and from the RT Radio 1 archives the voices of Gareth de Bruyne, Paddy Maloney, Pather O'Loughlin, Sean Potts and Tommy Potts himself. And of course, the music comes from the featured record, The Liffey Banks. The interesting thing about the Liffey Banks is its absolute uncompromising nature, you know, as if zero compromise was made towards, you know, making it palatable, entertaining, accessible or anything like that. Uh, There's just one like deep quality of sincerity and emotional expression that runs all the way through the recording, through every single track and through every single phrase played. So it's a remarkable genuine expression of of human feeling and emotion directly through music just in the voice of a solo fiddle i i have never really heard anything quite like it you know difficult thing he struggled with the, the the concept he struggled with the idea of professional art um, it, to him it was a spiritual deeply individual thing so but the sound in the Liffey Banks the, the recorded sound is, is quite beautiful and it has delivered some of the most iconic pieces of traditional music that are still being celebrated uh, 50 years later you can hear in, in the music the way the man thought I mean you listen to Blackbird break your heart you know, it's the truth of it, it'll break your heart. I feel like he's speaking to me, you know, like he's talking directly, like the phrase is almost um, coming in, like with the vocal quality to it, you know, as, as if he's singing directly to you with the fiddle. You know, you know the, the, the phrases have that kind of vocal quality to it. And they're, they're certainly kind of um, a, a, an emotional contour built into the tune, you know, that, that I suppose in a way represents a kind of an abstract narrative you know but i remember being in the kitchen at home listening to this music and it was the drunken sailor that really caught my attention probably because it was a tune that i recognized and that i really liked and then to hear it in this form where it was you know being played in a way i'd never heard before 
and I think just because of the dark tones of G minor on the fiddle, I think I was just intrigued that somebody had broken the rules, if you could call it that, and was playing it in this way. The things that appeal to me about Tommy Potts have all changed as I've grown up. So the first time I heard him play, I was a teenager. And what impressed me the most then was his ability to reimagine a tune in this, to me, to my ears, a very, very new way, something I'd never heard before. But what I appreciate now, 15 years later, is his musicality, his tone, his narrative style of fiddle playing, like he doesn't approach a tune just as a tune he approaches. It, it almost feels like it's a story because every phrase has a peculiarity, a quirk, a lilt, a beginning, middle and end. It's, it's a real story. And what impresses me more and more as I grow older is that all of this is coming from such an informed musical place and state of mind and is the culmination of somebody's life work life's work in music it's not just about the notes he plays or where he puts them it's the whole package and it's the emotion the the narrative as i said before it's like i can't recently i just can't get over the storytelling in this fiddle playing and it you can hear just a life of philosophy of, in his case also, theology of, of life experience and the evolution of a fiddle player from, from when he would have started playing, when he would have started listening to music and, you know, obviously coming from a, a background of, of great traditional playing and then evolving into this musician, into this character and, you know, living this life through music, but also allowing that to come through his music. My father spoke with him very lovingly, but he also explained he was a tortured kind of soul in terms of he, he struggled with the contradictions in life, I suppose, as we all do, um, particularly today. But um, he saw his music as, as a gift from God or, you know, this unrealized sort of search for uh, beauty through his music. Playing, it's, it's, it's so personal in me. It's... it's, it's uh it, it moves me so deeply, like, you know, emotionally. In fact, I've often said, I've often said a whole host of other things in nature, in, in the world, like uh, a fine man, a fine woman, good health, uh, sylvan beauty, all these things are just a poor reflection of what is to come. Now, such as it is, and um, for what it is, uh, mine is Irish tradition music, 
And I've said to myself, I, I, must, I, I must conform with what God has laid down. If this and that, what I'm talking about, is a poor reflection, it would be awfully stupid to, to, to do anything that would militate against realising the perfect thing. Tommy Potts was a renowned fiddle player from Dublin, son of John Potts, who was a, an Illum Piper who came from Banno in South County Wexford. He was my great-grandfather, uh, John Potts. He was originally a flute player and he moved to Dublin in, in the 1890s uh, to work in the Guinness Brewery and he learnt the pipes in Dublin from Nicholas Markey. And he became a very sort of avuncular figure around the traditional music at the time. Um, the city was developing and uh, there was movement into the city from from country people when country people would come to the city they would frequently visit the home of john potts in the Coombe, in the liberties uh, in south dublin and uh, so tommy was immersed in a, in a very uh, strong musical environment and he, he developed a, a very strong sense of the music uh, the structure of the music presumably from his father John unfortunately there's no existing recordings of John Potts but we we can learn from sort of the, the even Tommy's views on piping and and traditional music they would have he would have gleaned them from his, his own father he played the pipes and he was uh, a very good player and very interested in it and uh, my mother also played I think she played the concertina I know she did play the melodeon so like that, that was that. You see, the music was in the house. I tried the pipes too, but uh, I had observed all the time, even even young, that uh, they were the what should I say? It, it, it was a difficult instrument, like to keep in order. And like, uh, well, that wasn't uh, so terribly encouraging. You see, but I did try them, and um, I f- I found uh, that. Uh, I held my breath, and uh, well, I just couldn't keep on at them, like, and, uh, and do that, and I couldn't get, uh, I couldn't control it. So then, uh, around this time, we were visited by, you know, f- certain fiddlers. Uh, best known of them was uh, Mrs. Sheridan and Luke Kelly, and th- these impressed me. And this is, uh, I suppose, how I got to be interested in the fiddle. <laughs> Tommy was a fireman and um, he lost a lot of his friends actually in, a, in, a, in one, uh, one fire, a terrible accident, which I think had a profound effect on his outlook in life, you know, it, it, it hurt him a lot, you know, he, he subsequently worked for, for Dublin Corporation and he was 
married to a lovely woman, uh, Nellie Cullen from from County Waterford. And again, when he lost her, he he lost a, a you know a, a key part of his his own self, and um, he was very mournful for the remainder of his years. And uh, you know, he spoke a lot about death. He spoke about a lot about the afterlife, and. Um, and while his while his passing, I think in nineteen eighty, I remember my my father was very sad and shocked that he passed, but he died in sleep, and I remember them celebrating the idea that he had a peaceful sort of uh, passing, which um, he would have appreciated uh, because he thought an awful lot about our mortality and and existence. got to know Tommy Potts was through my father, uh, John Kelly, and uh, my mother, of course, uh, Frances. And uh, they owned a shop down in Cable Street in Dublin. And um, my father, being a musician from West Clare himself, fiddle and concertina, um, he got to know the musicians who lived in Dublin at that time, and uh, of course, visiting musicians as well. So uh, one of the families that he came into contact with in the early days would have been the Potts family. So um, when, when I was born, uh, I was the youngest member of my family. I was born in the late 50s, 57. And um, when I was growing up then, I would be in the shop uh, running around, going to school and things like that. Um, and I would meet to be in the company of the musicians who came to our house to visit my father and um, of course my mother as well. And um, then on different occasions when I was very young and in my early teenage years, let's say for example, then I um, I heard Tommy in the, in the shop playing um, his music. Uh, so I was always delighted to hear him playing because I loved his his style and his sound. He was technically a very gifted player. He did. He was influenced by by different genres, um. But he was a brilliant, brilliant traditional musician. And you know, it, it's not contradictory, or but it, it's very telling that he was most comfortable in the environment of West Clare with his friends like Padra Lachlan and Willie Clancy and Sean Reed. He felt very appreciated down there. He felt he was among people who understood his music. So for all the idea that it was somewhat avant-garde or he was most comfortable in, in the most traditional of music settings. I was a child uh, in the house, like living down in County Clare when Tommy Potts used to visit our house. So as a young child, I, I encountered him, but I wouldn't say I had a relationship with Tommy Potts or that I actually really knew the man. Although from a child's perspective, you know, you could see, you know, a certain amount, I suppose. Um, you know, he, he, he was, he, you know, he was a very serious individual, that's for sure, you know. 
and like he wasn't a ball of laughs like that was I didn't get that feeling but and but I also knew that he, I could see that he was an incredibly serious musician you know and a musician with some some considerable depth I think you know do you remember him playing music with your father and with other uh, musicians in County Clare? Yeah. yeah, he didn't play with them at all. Uh, like he would, he would come to our house anyway, and uh, and he would just take out his fiddle and start playing, and we would just all sit around, including my father and, and anybody else who was there, and we we sat and listened to him. Like so, so it was more like a a little mini recital or concert that would take place, uh, and. Uh, and he would be doing all the kind of things we, you know, have experienced on his recording and stuff, you know, just just him kind of improvising and going off on flights of fancy with his fiddle, you know. But it was a, it was quite a, an occasion, yeah, but, like, nobody attempted to play with him. It was, you know, not that... I mean, I do realise that he could play in a very conventional way if he wished, but it would be quite constraining to him, I think, and I don't think anybody thought that they should even try to play with him, you know. What did the musicians who were there or, you know, people like your father, what did they make of him and his music? Well, I, I would say some parts of the music might have been a little confusing to them and, uh, you know, a, a bit challenging. On the other hand, they knew him very well and were quite friendly with him and knew that there was a real depth of sincerity and intent and that he, he really knew a lot and had a deep, deep understanding of the music. So so while they may have been confused, I think, with some elements of his playing, I would say that there was a, a very, very deep respect for him and his playing. It had lots of things that a lot of people didn't like. He used to break time. In fact, he taught me the last night I met him. He said he got a great kick out of what Willie Clancy taught him once. He said, Pots, you're the only one I know who can break the time and music and get away with it. <laughs> he did lose time. He did play extra bars and short bars, and then he played perfect tunes. And his tone was great. His bone was immaculate. I don't think anyone could do it. And even up to three, four weeks ago when he died, his fingers were perfect. He played and he prayed and he cried. <laughs> he did all the things that I would expect him to do. Then again, I can't see what Tommy saw. I don't think anyone can. We're very fortunate that circumstance brought Garrick to Bruin to us at that time because some of the most important recordings of traditional music uh, were recorded during that period by Clada uh, under the you know the directorship of, of Paddy Maloney and you know if you look at the Liffey Banks and the Star Above the Garter and you know recordings of that nature which were you know so you know privileged to, to have you know to be able to access today. He was a deeply religious man and he felt if he made a recording he might be guilty of the sin of pride. And 
he actually had twice agreed with Kieran Makmahuna that he would go in to play on the Java Journey work and just didn't turn up. And so I asked him if he would and surprisingly he said yes and even more surprisingly he came and did so. And um, he came down to Lagalore because I thought it was better to do it in a house than in a recording studio that it wouldn't make him quite so nervous. Then I was the one who became very nervous and I'm very bad at the names of dance tunes. I can I know the names of airs, but um, I was very frightened, wondering what to ask him to play next. But he was wonderful, and he played away quite happily. We set up a, an old EMI quarter inch, which that was recorded on, incidentally. This this the old uh, EMI machine, you know, with a quarter inch tape, and. Uh, uh, but bringing Tommy down, you know, had to make 40 stops on the way from Brantley and Port and that. He was so nervous. He was terribly nervous. But um, uh, we had an English uh, friend who took a great interest, uh, Jon Allen, and he was doing the the uh, engineering. Uh, but I had Tommy in in the dining room, you know, and be gone, playing away, because I'd loved Tommy from, since, from the time I was going to Church Street, uh, you know, in my early teens, you know, 12 and 13, being brought there. And and uh, and th- th- he wasn't getting the recognition from his his mates there because this this stuff was, you know, <laughs> it was way ahead. Like, it was 100 years ahead of his time, Tommy. But uh, I got an awful lot, except now and again, he'd be going wonderful. I wanted to tell you about that tune, you know. I said, Tommy, you know, <laughs> breaking me heart. But... Uh, I managed to put it together eventually, you know, and uh, it's a lovely record, you know. Yeah, the Liffey Banks. I started transcribing The Drunken Sailor when I was 15 years old. And by the time I was 20, I had transcribed the whole Liffey Banks. But it would be unfair to say that it was any sort of proper transcription. I, d- I couldn't use bar lines because it didn't feel right to me. So I used phrase phrasing, just long phrases. And, you know, I didn't even put stems on the notes. They're just dots on the ledger lines. So that when I went back to look at how he shaped it, I wasn't looking at a traditional score of, you know, here's your, you know, four, four reel, your six, eight jig. I was looking at something that was movable and interchangeable and open to interpretation. What was challenging about listening to Potts was that it wasn't something I could immediately do and that's when my fixation on transcribing this music began and I think I had an iPod at the time if we remember those um and I remember just scrolling back and forth over two or three seconds at a time 
particularly for the slow airs because he does these really fast runs but they're not necessarily like a straightforward scale he might skip a note here or there and i would spend hours and hours scrolling back two or three seconds listening oh i didn't quite get that scrolling back again and in my 20s i went back to look at those transcriptions and i realized i'm gonna have to do all of these again because every time you go back to listen to pots at a different stage of your life when you've been through different things when you've experienced different things when your music has changed you know i had to, i just heard it completely differently i just said i have i have to do this again this doesn't make sense to me anymore the way i wrote it out first thing about the version of the drunken sailor on the Liffey Banks that struck me as a teenager is that there's you know a certain turn in the tune where I, I remember thinking to myself oh my god he just made a mistake and as a teenager you know you listen to pop recordings rock recordings classical music recordings traditional music recordings like an abundance of music and it's all perfectly produced perfectly packaged perfectly delivered and as, you know, a young musician, that is what you aspire to achieve, perfection. And you don't realize at that point how ridiculous and unattainable that is in a live performance situation. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, how do they ever allow that on the record? He must have been so upset, so mortified that he made a mistake. And, you know, it couldn't be further from the truth. It is one of the most incredible renditions of the drunken sailor that I've ever heard. It's so beautiful, so expressive. The way he uses the instrument in terms of broadening the, the range of the tune is just mind blowing. And his variations and ornamentations, I remember sitting in my bedroom, transcribing his version of The Drunken Sailor. Because when I tried to play it by ear, not only would I get confused and frustrated at times, but it genuinely felt like my hands were playing on ice and I was just slipping and sliding all over the place. Because for me to pick up a tune was no bother. Like any of us growing up in a house full of traditional music, God, you could listen to tune once or twice and definitely have the bones of it, maybe even be able to play it back. I had never encountered this level of frustration, but also admiration that somebody had done this. And I remember thinking, I have to, I have to figure this out. I have to know what it feels like to be able to play these notes in that order. And I thought as a teenager that it was all improvised. I learned later that it was all very much figured out. And part of me wonders if that little slip in the drunken sailor is a moment of inspiration or improvisation from Potts, where the finger just didn't land where he wanted it to, because that often happens when you take the risk. That is when you're more likely to have a tiny slip, but it's worth it because 
it's the music that comes through, not the tiny slip. That's not what people remember. And, you know, it's funny, I have to really listen for that slip now. Whereas when I was a teenager, coming from that sort of ideology that perfection is everything in music, that was the first thing that struck me. And now, you know, it's something that I find really beautiful in that track. When I joined uh, the Chieftains, probably 1960, when we started, or 63 or something like that, we were sort of semi-professional. And on one of the visits to us, I, I did visit him a lot at that time, and uh, on one of the visits he said, you know, Sean, you are now an art dealer. You're not an artist anymore. Won't you, won't you sell? You know, And I was always on to him, you see, to make a record. And I felt like that, well, if he makes a record, he's going to get money for it. Uh, obviously, and um, what would happen then? Would would he, would he be an art dealer? You know that kind of thing. We used to have arguments about that. But he, uh, no, he wouldn't play out. He wouldn't. He wasn't inclined to play for money or anything like that. Nor he wouldn't join a band. Or uh, he was a real loner, a soloist, and brilliant, brilliant. Now, uh, I remember on one occasion in fifty, I think it was fifty six at the Clare Fla. The, mo the most emotional experience I ever had in my life was Tommy playing in Leiden's pub in Milltown. Uh, the place was packed and he played for two solid hours and I was standing at the back of Leiden's with Nelly, his wife, the Lord of Mercy and her too and it was magnificent. I, I, like I was transcended. I was in another world altogether listening to him and of course he, he used to, he loved playing in Clare. He absolutely loved it. And he wouldn't go anywhere. He was reluctant to go anywhere. But at the old car, which he said, I'm going down to Clare, he would, he'd be away in a hack, you know. I have this sense of the recording, although I know very little about the details of how or when it was recorded. But I have this sense that um, he could care less, really, about the recording in, 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 in the larger sense, you know. Uh, but I think was deeply committed to entering that space of that music in that moment. I mean, I, there was an, a tune that I u sometimes use when I'm teaching master classes and workshops, and I will play the first <coughs> maybe two bars of the Dear Irish Boy for people. And the first thing that happens in that is that there's kind of a squawk, you know, like in the first bar. Now, any musician I know today, you know, if, if when you put your fiddle up to your chin and you make a mistake in the first bar, you will stop and start again. Like, for certain. Now, maybe if it was in the last bar of the tune, you mightn't, you know. You'll keep going and you'd say, you look at the mistakes are part of it. But to make a mistake in the first bar or to have a fiddle squawk right, right in the first few notes, you know, would mean that you would naturally stop and say, I'll, I'll do that again. But he kept going because he didn't care about that at all, it would seem. And... You know, he was only just interested in chasing the feeling. I never had the sense that he was obsessed about the fiddle or the technique or anything like that. But he was utterly obsessed with the depth of feeling. And in those first few bars of the tune, The Dear Irish Boy, 
there is an immediate depth of feeling and expression and sincerity that what I do in master classes is I'll repeat the first bar or two of that, you know, maybe 10 times until people go, aha, I get it. And I say, the whole album is like that. It's like every, every bar of every tune is like that. And so it's a remarkably dense compilation of, of, of emotional content, really, you know. One of my favorite things to do with students is to sometimes play that version and then hop on over and play Willie Clancy playing the same tune, you know. And like people are going, it's, it's like they, you can't even hear that they're the same tune. I mean, Tommy Potts, you know, would make a, of his own, he would make a tune utterly, he would transform it utterly into something that, that, that spoke for him to, to the point where it would almost be unrecognizable, you know. I loved the tone of his fiddle playing and uh, I also loved the pacing of his ornaments. When he'd play, uh, I'd watch him because I was very interested in, uh, you know, bowings and uh, bow directions and bow arms and bow grips, bow movements, all that kind of stuff. So I'd watch him playing, let's say, in the shop. He appeared to me to be a very animated person when he played his arm, the arm itself was very animated, moving upwards and downwards and sweeping across the fiddle. And um, when he put his head uh, on the chin rest of the fiddle and he moved his head back and forth and his hair fell down over his brow and he seemed to drift off into some dream world um, while he played. So I, I just thought that that was fascinating. had the core setting uh, in his mind and he knew exactly what those settings were as a musician. That's the first thing. Because in other words, if you don't have the core setting as a reference when you play, then you you don't have that reference, uh, you know, when you're trying to play the tune. So, so he used that and what he did was he improvised around the core setting of any tune that he played. He was able to use ideas for variations in tunes that he played and then as he went through those variations that he obviously had to f figure out then he was able to improvise on them at the same time. So my father was a member of Kjaltari Kulamachana Rida. Uh, Sonny Brogan um, was, uh, was the accordion player. Amy the Butler also played the accordion but Sonny was the accordion player with Kjaltari Kulin. And Sonny used to play Excapa Negleti, the Toss the Feathers, and um, 
uh, I'll just play a little snippet of Sonny's version. That's a kind of a simple version. But anyway, Tommy's, one of his kind of classic versions in that tune, uh, I'll play a little bit and then I'll go into the variation. just a completely different tune at that point. I learned Gareth Barry's jig from my granddad, Dinny, who grew up in the Rath um, out near Fingal. So for me, Gareth Barry's was a tune that was, you know, one of those tunes that you play your whole entire life. And as a child, you would almost say it's, it's a bit of a beginner's tune. You know, everyone can play that tune. And then I heard Tommy Potts play it. And I thought, ooh, how wrong was I to ever think that any tune is simple? What struck me about his way of playing Gareth Barry's are his, well, they're like arpeggiated improvisations, but obviously probably not improvised, probably very much worked out at the end of the first part because he starts with the second part of the tune. And I felt that there was definitely something in there that to me resonated very strongly with um, the way Bach wrote for solo violin. So like his um, jig in the second partita in D minor, for example. And there is that sense of feeling within the intervals that some intervals when you play them can be quite uncomfortable to play and kind of give you that kind of gnarly feeling of, oh, that kind of sounds a bit weird. And that's exactly what his um, variations in those tunes made me feel. And I loved it. It was so weird and so not part of the tune I had grown up with that I was immediately drawn to it. He goes into the gander in the pretty hole and then into the rambling pitchfork and the rambling pitchfork for me had absolutely nothing to do with the tune, the rambling pitchfork that I grew up having learned and played, played. So for me, that transcription was very exciting because I just loved the fact that if there are rules to be broken, he broke them. And in that track, he broke them all over the place. It was just an absolute revelation. Thank you. 
any influence that Potts had musically doesn't even enter your mind because the first thing you hear when you listen to the Liffey Banks the first time is what you know like you don't there's actually times where you don't hear anything because you're just like you're still trying to get over the the last phrase he plays you know I think for me it took me a while to be able to focus in on any sense of oh where might that have come from or I wonder what music he was listening to when he when he came up with you know his version of that tune so in terms of influences that's something that comes when the kind of the shock factor <laughs> has worn off but you know there's the famous ones where they say that his um variations of my on on my love is in america he's got the dump da 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 dump da 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 dum and that's mambo that's the the mambo variation from you know that popular tune and i have seen clips where uh, Mihal Osuruan thinks that his version of Toss the Feathers, which unfortunately isn't on that record, could potentially come from the Chopin Funeral March, although Potts doesn't doesn't really answer the question, so it's hard to know if it was or wasn't. So in terms of his influences, I would say the radio, what was being played from from London. I believe there was a lot of broadcasts from London at the time of concerts, classical music concerts popular music that was being produced at that time. Um, the late Dennis Cahill also told me that he heard a lot of Colonius Monk <laughs> in Tommy Potts's music. <laughs> and I remember having a great chat with him about that backstage at a festival somewhere. <laughs> and that's also very possible. There's definitely a sense of jazz in in the harmonic structure of what he played, in that it's not what we would traditionally lean towards in Irish traditional music. So I would think that that is also potentially an influence. But I try not to think of it as who influenced him. I try to think of it in the sense of how he managed to incorporate any ideas into traditional Irish music, because traditional Irish music has has such a simple melody line for the most part which is so beautiful and so nuanced and so difficult to master in its own right, that not only to be able to play simple melodic lines and master them, but to be able to introduce these new ideas and, you know, lead people on a whole other course. That to me is what's most impressive, regardless of where the influences come from. It's his sense of our traditional music that can manipulate those influences and add them seamlessly into our traditional music that he could compress that and and use his intuition to put it into our music, the music that he came from and that he had the most understanding of. That's really just, yeah, as I said, mind blowing. Well, I got a different Manolo Tiki played. Uh, I, I, I'm sure Seamus has it. He, 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 he could do me a good sword in here now. Uh, I don't know whether it was the tune that he called Bag and Bun. And uh, <coughs> I don't think I have the original thing, but it went something like. Uh, uh, actually, he began with the second part of what I the butterflies. Uh, uh, but 
something like that, but uh, not, not exactly. But uh, I consider the butterfly uh, a new tune. It's just I got the idea from that one. <laughs> I have albums, you know, it could be kind of Miles Davis's kind of blue or or or, or Jeff Buckley's Grace or, or Tommy Potts's Liffey Banks. You know, they they will never grow old, you know, and, and they do kind of keep on giving. And and I think as time goes on, and especially in my own case, as you know, you mature as a human being, it only it only gathers more depth, you know. Oh, I wouldn't say he was ahead of his time. I'd say he's still ahead of his time. <laughs> it's, I don't think we've caught up to this at all, you know, by any measure, you know. So I think he has laid out a kind of a blueprint there that, that, that kind of um, a, a challenge to all future generations, like to kind of a, a achieve this same level of, of clarity of expression and, and feeling, you know. Now, I haven't inhibitions like about uh, my status in life. Uh, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I'm not a well-educated person, but I haven't had any inhibitions now about that. But I have uh, good intelligence. Some might even say that I have very high intelligence. Well, uh, if I'm selfish and vain, and I'm intelligent, and I'm human, and the human heart is, is searching out for happiness. Now, when I play the music, that's the only satisfaction that I can get in my heart. The human heart is searching out for satisfaction. It isn't here, it's hereafter. Thanks for listening to the Rolling Wave podcast with me, Aoife Karmic. For rights reasons, the music here is shorter than in the original broadcast. So if you'd like to hear the longer versions of the tracks, you can go to rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash the Rolling Wave. Or indeed, you can go to the album itself, The Liffey Banks. This programme was first broadcast on the 18th of December 2022. Until the next time, Gurmila Mahagi, Agaslan.